welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Sam Bates, and he is the founder and CEO of Bates Capital Group, where their portfolio consists of 1,035 multifamily units in Texas and the Southeast. And his background is in finance and accounting, and he started his real estate journey back in 2019. And since then, he's been directly involved in the acquisition or development, reposition, disposition, asset management, and strategic planning of over $200 million in assets under management. So Sam, thank you so much for being here on the show today. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Aline, for having me. I look forward to talking to you and talking with your listeners. So Sam, let's start off if you can share with our listeners a little bit more of an insight into who you are, your background, and maybe what your current focus is on today. Yeah, definitely. For a long time, I knew I always wanted to do business and I didn't know exactly what part. I thought I wanted to be on the financial analysis, financial advisor role. So I got my undergrad in finance. I worked at a large investment bank as an investment analyst, putting together stock mutual funds and just high net worth individual portfolios. And then I decided to get my master's. I went back, the market crashed in 08 and it kind of left me spinning and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So I started off in consulting and I quickly realized I did not want to be in consulting for 40 years. So back in 2009, I started investing as a limited partner. Then I did quite a few single family homes, buy and hold, fix and flip, a spec build. And I realized you couldn't grow and scale with single family. So in 2014, I started looking for multifamily and couldn't get anything for a couple of years. So we started developing at 16 and it's kind of just went from there. And now I feel like we have a full economy. Everybody talks about being vertically integrated, but we buy land, we develop it either for single family or multifamily. We'll buy multifamily assets. We do land development on just the horizontal then sell the vertical side. And I'm also a co-founder of a modular construction company that we're, we've been working on for about a year, year and a half and looking to get funded to take that side of the business to another level. So you have a background in the financial industries and working with stocks and mutual funds and high net worth individuals. So how does that, like when you're working in that space, you got to saw, got to see firsthandedly and worked with other investors who are directly involved with like stocks and mutual funds. And then how did that change into like real estate? And then why did you switch your focus at that time? I think there's a few serendipitous things that happened over the those few years. The financial advisors I worked with, I started realizing that they were putting all their clients, whether they made 250000 or $2 million, into the same funds and the same portfolio. And they talked about diversification. They talked about risk profiles, but that really wasn't a thing. The market was going up in 05, 06, 07 until it crashed. So they were just putting them in the highest commission stocks or portfolios. So I felt like they didn't have the best interest in mind for the client. And then in grad school, I read several real estate books and it just opened up my eyes. Like I had 
a couple of real estate classes in undergrad, but it was more from a theory perspective and not from an actual overall perspective of just doing instead of being or instead of theory. And the more I researched, the more I felt like it is localized. You do bit you are able to take a large ownership and make sure it's a good investment. Like with multifamily, you can add value by just improving the property, increasing rents, decreasing expenses. You can't do that. You can with single family, but it's based on market comps, not actually the value of the business. So I looked at it that way. And then I focused on private placements where the value doesn't change just based off of the market or the macroeconomics of the economy. Like I've invested in startups and VC companies. And typically, you add a lot of alpha when you diversify into the more alternative assets and not just the mainstream assets. One of the things you had mentioned was like when you were working in the financial industries, the brokers out over there and the advisors would take a look at the risk profiles or supposedly they were supposed to take a look at the risk profiles and kind of balance it all out. So there are some high risk opportunities balanced with some lower risk opportunities, but it didn't seem like they were really doing that. So when you switched your focus over to real estate, what was kind of like the difference in terms of the risk profiles and how are you able to diversify in what you're doing now? In regards to diversification, I feel like you can diversify in different markets and different asset classes. We don't do industrial, but industrial is going to be a little bit different than retail or multifamily. We've built triple net leases. We've built strip malls. So we have different asset classes our investors can invest in and timelines differ as well. And then from a development perspective versus acquisition perspective, typically the development, you're going to get a higher return, but you aren't going to get cash flow for a few years, maybe even longer, depending on the market and the cycle. So if one of our investors needs cash flow for essentially a bond payment each month for their living, we aren't going to steer them to development. And we have some investors that have invested on every single acquisition with us, but they know the development is going to take two, three years before they see any type of return. So they don't put their money in there. How did you... I guess maybe I'm missing a little bit of part of the story also. Like like when you started with single family and then you went to multifamily and then now you're doing land, Like, how did you make the movements between the different asset classes into like what you're doing today as well? If Maybe you can give a little bit of background yeah, of that too. Um, it's definitely not all myself. I've had a couple of great partners really since 13 or 14. And one of the guys I worked with a consulting firm before that. And one had a background in development one is a CPA and he's very well connected. I focus on a lot of the finance operations and also capital raising, but we kind of felt found our lanes and stayed in those and ran with them. And that's allowed us to be able to create the development company. It's allowed us to build, we build roughly 200 homes a year now. We have 50 employees, roughly 50 employees in that side of the business. And then our multifamily side, we use the same contractors, but we have only a few office staff that helps us keep up with the multifamily acquisitions. We still third-party those. We feel like we're able to effectively manage the third-party managers. And we have assets in Texas and throughout the Southeast. So at this point, it doesn't make sense for us to bring property management in-house. 
So what does your like investment thesis kind of look like overall? Like, and especially in today's market, in today's environment, um, has that changed over time? And, and how are you structuring how you approach real estate and the different opportunities that are coming your way to deal with and handle the unforeseen or like the changing environments in, in, in real estate? We've always took a conservative approach. And I don't know if our thesis has really changed that significantly. We were, I felt like one of the first groups, especially in the syndication realm that developed. And a lot of people always thought development was risky and too, (laughs) just too out there. And we've always felt like development is a great opportunity. And we focus on in the secondary and tertiary markets. So we focus where there's not much competition. We can't compete with JPI or Trammel Crow or some of these large national developers, but we can go into a market that's underserved, that has supplied. We've always looked at supply demand characteristics, and we've always built in places that the demand is significantly higher than what the supplies produce. So we'll get third-party reports or do our own analysis to figure that out. But if you build a good product, you can find good tenants. You'll get some bad ones here and there, but I would much rather have a brand new property than a 1970s property. And the tenant base is more than likely going to be better in a new property than 1970s. And we can build, especially now, maybe not when we started, but now we're building brand new class A properties cheaper than what a lot of 1970s properties are selling in the market for. So we can go in, create great value and add a lot of value from our construction and expertise to to our investors. We've always underwritten for the cap rate expands significantly from what the current in-place cap rates are. It's worked out very well for us since cap rates have always compressed. And right now we're adding a lot more of interest rate movement on our refinance scenarios. We used to keep the interest rates pretty much in line with where they were at that point. But as you know, the Fed's raised rates every quarter this year. They just raised them yesterday. They're probably going to raise them again. So I think looking at interest rates is key. Your cap rate, going in cap rate and exit cap rates key. We've always underwritten to 2 or 3% rent growth, um, which in most markets has been conservative. And since COVID happened, it's been ultra conservative compared to what everybody's achieved across the last couple of years. So those are just a few things that we will look at and consider. And then we import a lot of our material from Asia. So we get a significant cost differential than what we could buy it at in the US. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. For the interest rates, what kind of spread are you 
I guess, estimating right now because nobody really knows where interest rates are yeah. going to go. So what kind of like, I guess, buffer in between what your estimate is versus like what it is currently today that you add in? It depends on the project. But for instance, we're, we've been working on a student housing development for a year and a half already. And we are about to go vertical and we think we'll probably refinance by next December or so. So we've done about a one 100 basis point spread from now until then. Another project we're working on is probably going to be two years before we refi. So we've had the spread increase to 150 bips. So it just kind of depends on the project and what the timing of the project. And then does this the same concept or the same, I guess, your same process of how you come up with the basis points for the interest rates does that also apply to how you're approaching like your cap rates and where they might end up in the next couple of years? Uh, the cap rates, we haven't decompressed as much as interest rates. We still think, at least in the markets that we invest in, there's significant supply and demand, or there's significant demand. So we're usually increasing the cap rate by 50 basis points, just because more than likely we aren't going to hold on for more than five years. So 10 basis points per year on some acquisitions, or if we do acquisitions, we'll look more at the historical cap rates than the cap rates right now, or the cap rates six months ago, just because they're compressed compared to the previous years. And so you mentioned also that you focus on the secondary and tertiary markets. Um, what kind of markets are you looking at? And then are you looking to expand in other markets as well, or just staying in the current ones that you're invested in and building it out there? From the single family development side, we focus completely west of Fort Worth um, and we'll stay there. We might do some secondary and tertiary markets on the other side of Dallas or north of Dallas, but it's going to take a while before we expand outside DFW. From an apartment standpoint, we've bought throughout Texas and then in Memphis, Atlanta, and Orlando. It's been suburbs of those markets. So I think, and we own in Dallas, but it's very hard to get deals in those markets and the primary ones. Everybody's buying for them. And we've just had luck with either finding land at a significant discount um, through our network or getting deals through our network in secondary and tertiary markets. Most acquisitions we've done have been truly off market that brokers have bought us, brought us. And if we were looking in Dallas or Houston or Austin, there's more realistically, that's not going to happen. So now that the economy has gone through 10 to 12 years of growth and prosperity and we're technically in a recession now, we might start pulling back and stop looking as much in the secondary and tertiary markets and focusing more on the primary markets. Like I haven't underwritten an acquisition yet this year because I feel like development is where to be right now. I feel like it's with the cost of acquiring an apartment versus building, it just doesn't make sense for us to go after acquisitions since we can build. And if there was, out of all the different projects that you worked on, if there was like one lesson that you could take away from the projects and then you can apply it to your future endeavors, like what would that one lesson be? There's many. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every project we learn new lessons. Probably the biggest lesson I personally learned was on an acquisition we did. And it was basically, it taught me to go with my gut because 
from the first moment I met the on-site property manager at one of our properties, she just didn't give me a good feeling. And we were in a market that is 80 to 90% military. And like when we took over, our property was 90% occupied by military. And we had three, three big deployments in three months. And we went from like 90 to 92% occupied to 65. Oh, wow. And I used the property management company in the past and I trusted that they could bring it back up and they just couldn't. And so we made a switch to another management company and I, we quickly realized it was an onsite staff. And looking back, I should have went with my gut. I just didn't want to rock the boat because I trusted the management company, but it, it definitely taught me a lesson. <laughs> This was the the new property management company that wasn't able to perform for you. It was a new one from that acquisition, but it was a one we've used in the past. I see. What was the biggest reason why they weren't able to turn it around? I think it was the on-site personnel, honestly. They weren't friendly. <laughs> they didn't cater to the residents. And I just don't think they were doing their job, to be frank. And property management is very relational. It's I don't want to say bending over backwards, but you have to cater to your residents. You have to market. You have to differentiate yourself from the competition. And if you're sitting in your office all day, not doing anything, people might show up, but they might not. So then what happened after that? that you, what was the action that you did after that? Well, we brought in the new company and we put together a marketing blitz, um, both on social media and through the internet and on the ground. It wasn't overnight, but we did bring the property back up to 94 to 98% consistently. And that market is one, since it is highly saturated with military, it's just constant turnover and turnover leases. So we got out of it this year. We did very well for our investors, but part of it was the market timing. Part of it was the renovations we did. But I doubt we'll go back into that market just because, I mean, we'd have... 20 people some some months turning their notice because they were military and we couldn't change anything. We couldn't force them and we couldn't collect early termination fees. So it was just a constant revolving door. Got it. No, fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And so for, for you, you're saying that now you're focusing more on the development side. And so I guess on the development side, what is the biggest thing like when you focus on development, like what is the biggest thing that you focus on first? And then what is the one thing that you know you have to be wary of as you're getting into a development project? Because there's so many things that could yeah. go wrong and there's so many things that could go right. But what is maybe like the main thing that you focus on? We've always developed in path of progress areas except one time. And I think we look from a macro standpoint and then go to the micro. And it's important because you can build the best product in an area, but if people aren't able to lease it for what you're wanting to lease it for, or people aren't there to lease it, it doesn't matter. So we look at it from a macro standpoint and see if the city's growing, if people are moving to that area. We'll look and just kind of see the supply demand and what percentage of the apartments or what the occupancy is of all the apartments that are already in the communities. We'll talk to the some cities are more pro building than others. So we'll talk to the plan and zoning first. We've learned that it's easier to develop in areas that are outside the city because you can develop a lot quicker and you don't have to go through all the hassle. But there's drawbacks. Like one of our first developments was outside the city limits and we got it up in about six months. But 
the water isn't connected to city water. So we've had well issues literally for four years. <laughs> so I don't know if there's like one answer, but you definitely need to talk to your city to see the plan and zoning because each city is different. Each jurisdiction or municipality has different rules. Like on one development, we were told the city was going to pave essentially six feet of concrete, concrete road. They didn't. So that was an extra $520,000 that we had to come up with. So there is more uncertainty in development, but one way we mitigate that for our investors and we want to make them feel as secure as possible. We do all the entitlements. We do the horizontal construction before we go vertical. And that way we have all the engineering, architecture, just everything needed before we go vertical and we know the cost. So we can tell the investors it's going to cost X to build and we're raising X for this amount, for this reason. What's the most common question you typically get from an investor? Uh, How much money I can make? (laughs) (laughs) That's usually the most common. I think once we're in... The operating phase, a lot of the investors we have are in the financial space or small business owners. So some of them will dig into the P&L every month and ask just random questions. But surprisingly, when I've went outside the state of Texas, most of our investors are either Texas or New York. And people ask the question, why are we leaving Texas to invest in other markets? So I don't know what the most common is, but those three kind of come to the top of my head. Oh, awesome. Thank you for sharing, Sam. So for you, Sam, how has real estate investing impacted your life? Because you left your corporate job and then you went into real estate full-time and you've been doing this for several years now. Um, What was the change and how has it impacted your life? It's impacted it in ways I've probably never could imagine. Like when I first started investing in real estate, I never thought I'd syndicate or own a company. I thought I'd be doing just kind of one-offs for myself and create some cash flow and just be able to retire and enjoy life. But professionally, it's made me better because I'm having to talk to all these funds and high net worth individuals or cities. I mean, from a professional standpoint, it's just done wonders. But personally, I mean, I've been able to help investors that we know personally, because most of the people that invest with us, we've had some type of relationship or referral. We've been able to make great returns for them and help them achieve their goals or dreams. And we've had multiple ones after sales of properties or refinances, thank us through email, phone, and just they've told us how they use the funds. And I think that's great. And then personally, I've been able to... Real estate's been lucrative, but I've been able to give back in a lot of ways that I never dreamed possible. So I think that's been the biggest win for me in terms of how it's impacted my life. And if there was one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be? That's a good question. There's so many things, but I would say it's cliche, but I'd say your network is your net worth. And the more people you know, and the more connections you can make, the better it's going to be. And like I randomly worked with one of my partners who randomly went to church with his other partner and now we've been together for seven or eight years and it's been phenomenal. And the people we've got to meet, the people we've got to impact, the tenants' lives we've got to even affect. Like one time we took over a three property portfolio in Dallas and a preacher church I went to called me. He's never called me. 
And he's like, thank you for buying that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said they would send some of the people that didn't have jobs or homes to this one apartment. And they finally had to stop doing it because it was so bad. And just being able to change cities in small ways is very rewarding. But I, I kind of got off topic. But yeah, I think just your network is your net worth and just constantly grow and learn. Those have both been huge keys to my success. Yeah, it's interesting because especially within real estate, you get to impact more than just like the people that you're working with their lives, right? But you're also impacting like the community and like the churches and stuff like that. And how wonderful it is to get a phone call and saying like, hey, you've impacted the community in such a positive way, a direct impact. And you're seeing the direct impact of what you're doing in this space. Yeah, it's very rewarding because in the consulting field, I was saving Fortune 500 companies millions of dollars and it didn't impact their bottom line at all. So it's great to be able to make just incremental changes in people's lives and possibly make a significant difference for them. And if there's one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate, what would that be? I think tenacity and just the internal fortitude to keep going because you're always going to have issues. You're... You're never going to go according to pro forma. I mean, the first house I bought, I remember the agent called me and told me there's foundation issues like two days before we were going to close. And I was going to walk, step away and walk away from the contract. But my contractor at the time had already started doing work <laughs> without me knowing. So if he wouldn't have, who knows if I would have even continued the real estate journey. But every project we've ever done, there's hiccups and things that are out of our control, but you have to pivot and learn how to mitigate whatever issue it is or just get through that process. So you definitely need to love your job or have the internal fortitude to push through. So Sam, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all that with us today. For our listeners out there also who want to find out more about what you're doing in the space, follow your journey, where's the best place that they can go to find out more? Definitely. You can go to basecapitalgroup.com and I have some free resources that talk about the top 10 alternative ways to invest and how the 1% invest. You can get it from there. Awesome. All right. All right, Sam. We'll also put that in the show notes so people can access it easily. But thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, Thank you, Eileen. I enjoyed it and look forward to talking to you again. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, Check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sale and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.